the Australian Histories podcast. In the previous episode, we explored the background of an English convict named William Buckley and retold how he came to be the first white man to live amongst the Wathawurrung people around the western side of what we know today as Port Phillip Bay in Victoria. He experienced their culture at a time before the impact of colonialism had taken its toll and forced great change. His experiences and recollections were later written up by John Morgan and published in the mid-1800s. So today we'll continue his story and see how he adapted to living with these First Nations people. We note that Morgan's biography of Buckley was a document of its time, regularly referring to the First Nations people as savage natives or uncivilised or barbarous, judging their lack of Christian morals and Western world understanding and focusing on and playing up what could have been seen as the sensational and brutal behaviours, no doubt because such sensationalist content would sell well once the book was published. Buckley himself sought out Morgan in order to tell his story before he died. I feel that Buckley had gained an unusually nuanced understanding of the cultural practices he saw around him during the period he lived with his adopted family and their extended clans, even though he wasn't always comfortable with the more harsh and confronting practices he witnessed, he nevertheless maintained a level of respect for their culture, which was unusual for most European newcomers at that time. Of course, Buckley was never quite at ease with the violence displayed by his original Christian white community either, witnessing the brutality that they were capable of in the convict environments and afterwards towards the indigenous peoples as the colonists arrived in the lands of the Kulin Nation. He was shocked by the cruelty they were capable of too, despite being civilised. He could see the devastation coming for the Kulin Nation, and his motivations in telling his story may have been to help record what he knew was a culture potentially about to face its death throes. In wanting to help others understand his adopted society, that desire would sometimes clash with Morgan's interest in telling an exciting and sensational story one that would appeal to the impressions of the majority of the white readers it would reach. So, with that in mind, let's take a look today at the kind of life Buckley recorded with the Wathawarong, and hear some of his reflections on the culture he experienced. Before I start, I'd like to thank Ruth B, Kyle A, and John W for your contributions to keeping this podcast independent and ad-free. I also received a few excellent comments and reviews this month too, so thank you so much for all your kindness. All right, back to the Buckley story. Once again, I'll largely be using the Larkins book called The Personal History of William Buckley, Murrungurk Among the First People as source material, as well as the original biography recorded by Morgan in 1852, The Life and Adventures of William Buckley. Bibliographic details of both and others, materials that I've used, will be on the reference list on the Australian Histories podcast webpage. And there's also a link to the online version of Morgan's book there. So we left off last episode following Buckley's adoption into the Wallaranga clan of the Wathawurrung people, accepted as the reincarnation of their lost warrior, Murrungurk, Nullaboyne's brother. He was now in the care of his brother, Nullaboyne's family, and would live amongst them as one of their own. It's a fascinating little window into their lifestyle, one that quickly changed in many aspects 
once numbers of Europeans arrived to settle in the later decades, and Buckley's early insights and interpretations are of great interest. Once Buckley understood he was being taken into this clan as an honoured person, he saw his immediate future, at least, with his adopted family, and he was eager to make every effort to, quote, be careful not to give offence in the smallest thing, unquote. And this attitude was an uncommon one amongst whites who found themselves taken in by the first Australians in those early years, as we noted in the story of the Sydney Cove survivors making first contact along the East Coast in their walk to Port Jackson in episode 43. It was a steep learning curve for the Europeans to begin to understand the complex protocols and laws that they were expected to adhere to. Many of these men felt an innate sense of superiority to any savage they might come across, and so it was hard for them to feel any respect for the indigenous people they might meet. Rather, they focused on the lack of recognisable Western and Christian cultural practices and the physical accoutrements of a civilised society as they saw it, so not a recipe for understanding or mutual respect, really, which would be needed to negotiate a harmonious outcome. However, Buckley seemed to be one who could put aside his prejudices and judgment and simply observe his new community in order to better understand. Certainly, there was a lot of brutality displayed, but there was also an appalling level of violence tolerated in the convicts and colonial societies he escaped from too. So he was able to see, while his new society did things differently to his old community, both were operating within and inevitably sometimes without, the differing legal and cultural behavioural systems that each society had constructed. Of course, their cultures and understanding were so vastly different, it would not be an easy thing to avoid giving offence, perhaps. He could put a foot wrong at any time, and their punishments were severe, but fortunately for him, his miraculous resurrection had given his new family and community the obligation to protect him, to take care of him, and to help him relearn all his lost skills, to treat him with the patience one might show to a child. So he would be given lots of leeway as he took his time to absorb the Wadawurrung language, learn the cultural protocols and laws, and generally absorb the social mores of his new mob. Buckley recorded numerous interesting experiences in his memoir, including his first invitation to join a hunting party, looking for possums. And I loved the details in this recollection. Larkins described men setting off with spears and stone hatchets hanging from belts made of hair. The hunting site was some distance from the village, so temporary bark huts were built for shelter, which he described as willems, the hatchets being used to strip the green bark required from the trees. They would stay a couple of days gathering a number of possums to bring back for their meat, the skins, fur for the capes, and which could also be used to make other useful items. Buckley's brother, Nullaboyne, showed him how to identify the trees with possums in them by gently blowing on the bark to see if traces of possum fur were attached. I'm going to head outside to see if I can use this technique to identify fur on the wooden lamppost outside my house, knowing that the local possums here use it to access my roof before they perform their own noisy corroborees or turf wall brawl on my flat roof each night. They sound more like hefty workmen with hobnailed boots doing an Irish jig up there than the little possums. I have to remember to warn visitors about the noisy possibility, as it can be quite startling. Sadly for me, I cannot clamber up there after them and dash them to oblivion, though many a night woken I would be keen to do so. 
part, I'd be delighted to find some fur with this method that might indicate I had gained just one small but valuable piece of bushcraft from this research. <laughs> it's a bit weird going around blowing on tree trunks, I know, but you can bet I'm going to try it when I'm out in the bush now too. So Nullaboyne would then use a hatchet, which they called um, Kalolingirk, to cut some chinks into the trunk and use them as toeholds for scaling the tree and locating the hollow where the possum might be sleeping. He would extract the unlucky possum and hurl it to the ground. It was Buckley's job to chase and capture any that were not killed outright by the drop. He was again given a safe job, as a child would have been, rather than being expected to make the dangerous climb, and he noted how he was praised like children would be too. When he caught any escaping possum, they would shout out encouragement, calling out, Merrijig! Merrijig! Which means, well done, well done. He was clearly being coached and encouraged, as a beginner might be. Indeed, the communal hunting and foraging activities were pleasant and social occasions, and Larkins notes that they probably spent only about half their week working at gathering provisions. This lifestyle generally left them with more leisure time than any working-class European would have had at that time. Buckley was astonished at the variety and quality of food they had access to, noting, quote, by eating this food continually, I soon recovered my usual health and strength, unquote. Mind you, there were some items in the diet that he balked at, including eating dingo, which was, for him, too much like eating dog, something he just couldn't come at. The women usually harvested the Murinong tubers, found in abundance then, which the Europeans later called daisy yams, and Buckley describes as looking a bit like radishes, but which were largely destroyed once sheep and cattle came in, trampling the land. They were cultivated regularly by tilling, and Larkins notes that there were strict protocols on its use to ensure sustainable growth for future seasons. And these were very valuable food sources, as recent investigations have shown that these plants have up to eight times the nutritional value of the humble potato. So the poor old Irish could have used some Murinong tubers in their diet. Buckley was right. They were living in comparative clover in those days. The abundance of Murinong tubers would indicate that they were, at that time, into September or October, though the First Nations peoples marked the passing of the year by the seasons rather than by named months. In fact, the Wathawarrung recognised seven seasons rather than just four, charting their passage in line with the movement of known phases in the night sky, along with the progress of various plant cycles. I'll put an image showing the outline of the Kulin Nation's seasons on the webpage. Buckley also noted how they kept track of the days when it was necessary. If they had an invitation to be at a meeting in a specified number of days, for example, they would mark the total number of days required on their arm, quote, rubbing one off as each day passes, unquote. I was fascinated to learn from Larkins that the Wathawarong could have been responsible for the maintenance of the wordy Yuang stone arrangements near Mount Rothwell, and which is thought to be older in its origins than England's Stonehenge though visually their arrangement is very much smaller, not having those impressive monoliths in place. Its arrangement is actually 50 metres across at its widest and has alignments which mark the winter and the summer equinox. And just coincidentally, for those of you interested in those ancient stone constructions as I am, I just happened to have listened to a recent English Heritage podcast talking about an exhibition on at the newish Stonehenge Visitor Centre in the UK, which takes a look at other prehistoric constructions that appear in cultures far removed from the European ones like Stonehenge. 
specifically those found in Japan, dating from the Jomon period, also created roughly the same time Stonehenge was built, and highlighting some parallels between the two cultures, separated by thousands of miles. So people all over the planet had the need and had found ways to mark the passage of time, building devices to mark and measure, and possibly even worship and celebrate the changing of the seasons, including our own First Nations people. I'm going to include links to that English Heritage podcast and some papers about the wordy Yuang stone arrangement in the references on the Australian Histories podcast webpage for those who are interested. Buckley relaxed into his new family arrangements and he was keen to learn both the language and the customs, wishing to make himself as useful to his community as possible. His adopted clan was equally delighted at the progress he made, Buckley noting, quote, They expressed great delight when I got hold of a sentence, or even a word, so as to pronounce it somewhat correctly. Then they would chuckle and laugh and give me great praise, unquote. These were people far from the savage primitives he had been told they were. They always shared the food court and gathered amongst the whole clan, but he was aware, quote, My friends, in their kindness, always served me with the choicest portion of everything they had, unquote. And he was grateful for their ongoing kindness. And his safety was their great concern, too. Larkins wrote, quote, The clan treated him like a young child, so if he wandered out of sight for any length of time, an alarm would be raised and he would quickly be found, unquote. Buckley describes his first experience of gathering eggs, which were available in abundance at a particular season. His mob would be invited to the country of their neighbours to partake in the abundance, collecting swan and duck eggs, as well as catching some of the adult birds, over a several-day period. He records killing, quote, a great many swans, which were served out to each family according to their wants, unquote but always leaving enough untouched so as to ensure a sustainable harvest again for next year. Another exciting event was his first kangaroo hunt. Dingo pups were trained up to assist with the hunt, and the men, armed with spears and large boomerangs, would place themselves along the hunting ground, where they could see the game approaching as the other men and dogs drove them past the hunters. Quote, considerable dexterity is used by them in catching and killing kangaroo, for they place themselves at particular spots and distances and then spear them without difficulty. Unquote. Buckley and others were armed with clubs which could dispatch any injured animal that had been speared or felled by the hunting boomerangs. He also reported catching and eating an emu, which he described as having an excellent flavour, <laughs> and a koala, which he named as carbor which were easy to catch once on the ground and, quote, made excellent eating, resembling pork in flavour, unquote. <laughs> oh, it seems like just about everything tastes a little like pork if you're hungry, doesn't it? <laughs> just ask Alexander Pierce. <laughs> Most surprising of all to me was his pronouncement that nongyong, or wombat, made good eating if they were well cooked. I should think cooking well would be a necessity, probably over several days, I would imagine, It'd be like eating a boulder, surely. Buckley reported becoming a competent hunter as the years passed, being able to wield his spear and use his tomahawk expertly. Quote, they taught me to skin the kangaroo and opossums with mussel shells, in the same way sheep are dressed with the knife, to stretch and dry them in the sun, to prepare the sinews for sewing them together for rugs, and to trim them with pieces of flint. I became also expert at catching eels, unquote. 
He described the meat preparation and roasting process, which, if not already known to you, might be handy knowledge if you find yourself out back, subsisting on bush tucker. Quote, the limbs of these animals they broke, and flinging them into the fire, they kept them there until the hair was singed. They then took out the entrails and roasted the bodies between heated stones, covering them over with sheets of bark and earth. After this process, which lasted two hours, they were ready for eating and were considered a dish for the exquisite. Unquote. He learned how to reduce insect bites, keeping mozzies at bay by careful placement of fire sticks upwind, the smoke deterring them. They would preserve excess meat by slow drying it over their fires. Possum jerky, anyone? <laughs> His clansmen also coached him in catching fish, either by building weirs and applying fish traps on inland waters, or hooking them with bait on lines, or spearing them from canoes in the bay, usually at night, using fire sticks on board to attract the fish close to the surface. In the years that passed, he became more and more proficient at all these skills and could hunt and trap fish, eels and various game, building his own collection of weapons and tools over time. And he learned how best to cook each food, slow baking or grilling so on, and so on. Eel season in particular prompted large gatherings, with different clans coming together and corroborees held and again, we can still see today the remnants of the massive network of fish and eel traps in the environment around Kondiagilic, known today as Lake Karangamite, and at other sites around watercourses like those at Lake Kondar further west on Gunditjmara country. Dating back at least 6,000 years, these Bijbim aquaculture structures were declared a World Heritage Site in 2019. Also abundant around the lake at particular times of the year were the swans and other water birds and the very nutritious eggs, which I mentioned earlier. But for all the regular caring and sharing amongst the clans, their culture also tolerated a disturbing level of violence, certainly to our modern sensibilities. And the, quote, continual contests, unquote, alarmed Buckley. He estimated there was probably a death every month on average, so that's a very high death rate from violence for a relatively small community. Buckley would discover these large inter-clan gatherings in particular could get a little out of hand and violence would often erupt, a situation he always found very disturbing. Hostility could begin over many types of disputes, but a common one was over sexual behaviour. In general, at a corroboree, with goodwill in abundance, Sexual favours of the women might be shared if the husbands offered their wives to other men present, but generally adultery was frowned upon and could cause angry argument and clashes. Of the corroborees, Buckley noted, quote, At certain times the women are lent to young men who have no wives. The women in other respects are faithful to their husbands, unquote. Buckley doesn't record if he was offered the wives of others or that he indulged in any sexual relations. Indeed, he claims to have avoided this complication altogether. But given how often these arrangements went sour, if he did so, he was obviously exceedingly cautious so as not to offend and bring trouble on his adopted family and community or be at risk of being ostracised or punished himself. He very early became aware that sexual misconduct of one kind or another was a common source of dispute, often leading to physical punishments and sometimes death. In an era when he would have been no stranger himself to domestic violence amongst his European society, he was nonetheless shocked by the levels of violence and the harsh ritual punishments that were common amongst the clans he came into contact with in Australia. 
such as a husband spearing his wife after finding her unfaithful, this or some other severe physical punishment being an accepted practice in the communities. He described the major cause of hostility and fighting as being precipitated by escalations in quarrels caused by quote-unquote jealousy. He noted the women were just as likely as the men to respond with violence if they felt slighted, but he notes, quote, The poor women got much the worst of it, for after having had their furious combats amongst themselves, the husbands then think it necessary to thrash them into quietitude, unquote. Yep, truly appalling, and there are a great many customs from many cultures that are better off being left in the past. The acceptable violence of the previous eras being the first of those, I'm sure. Inadvertent injury might occur by and to the young men present at these large gatherings, including during spear-throwing games, and such an accident had the possibility of escalating into greater violence, a dynamic that occurs in many societies around the world, including on and off the modern sports fields today. Buckley was always very disturbed by this propensity to revert to fighting and always tried to avoid any of this violence for himself and for his family throughout his time living amongst the Aboriginal communities. He became quite the mediator amongst his mob. Buckley suggested it took him about two years to learn to speak his family's language pretty well. He noted in the early days, quote, they took considerable pain to teach me their language, unquote. They figured his death and rebirth meant that he needed to start learning all over again, and of course he continued to get better, finally declaring that he spoke the Walaranga language perfectly. <laughs> Aware of the sensitivities around relations with the women, he claims he was very careful not to get involved in sexual relationships at all, as I mentioned earlier, though Larkins does wonder if this was not just more of Buckley's discretion and his cautious approach to admitting to the more morally contentious parts of his life to his white Christian readers, for whom such a relationships would have been disgraceful. Still, he was pretty adverse to bringing trouble on himself, so it might be true However, at some point he was offered a wife by his extended family, a young widow from a neighbouring mob apparently, though it appears she was not all that keen on the arrangement herself. Buckley records some kind of marriage ceremony taking place, though he fails to elaborate any further, and then he had a sanctioned wife. But only several weeks into his new marriage, some men from a neighbouring group came to their hut, and she left with them, never to return. Larkin suggests his wife may have been revolted by him <laughs> with his pale skin and no piercings and markings that would indicate his passage into manhood and the like. Buckley did go to her clan and discuss the situation with the headman, but he opted not to take any kind of revenge or inflict any punishment, such as the usual spearing that desertion may have warranted, and he left her to her new life. This was an unusually peaceful resolution and indicates perhaps that Buckley had little interest in the marriage really, but it transpired that she was soon afterwards punished by her own people anyway though. Buckley recorded many other elements of his adopted society which I find interesting, many cultural practices that were common for the time. For example, his people might wear jewellery and adornments of various kinds, often made from shells, swan and emu feathers, and kangaroo teeth, and decorated with red ochre and the like. The men might wear a bone through their nose. One weird observation was that both men and women were keen to rid themselves of grey hairs, plucking them out of their hair and beards, giving up only when the number overwhelmed the task as they aged. So an aversion to grey hair, well, well, who would have thought? 
They also generally wore their hair short, around neck length, using sharpened shells to achieve the cut. And it's interesting to note that when drawings were made of Buckley after he finally made contact with the colonial whites, many drew him with a long beard and long wild white hair to match the wild white man moniker that they also gave him. But in fact, he would have been well-groomed with short hair and close beard, as was the social custom in his clan. And his hair would have been mostly dark rather than grey. I'll place a more reliable sketch of Buckley as he came to the white camp on the episode webpage. He notes, their beards were kept short by allowing them to grow for several days and then singeing them off with a fire stick or scraping at them with the sharpened shells, both sounding like pretty unpleasant procedures to me. So grooming must have been important to them to bother with that. The adult men would endure symbolic scarring, having ash or sand rubbed into a deliberate wound, leaving a raised scar, and the piercing of a nasal septum for the insertion of a bone was also part of the transition into manhood. As mentioned earlier, Buckley was not subjected to these rituals, and Larkins wonders if this was because they knew he would already have done so in his earlier incarnation. Certainly, there were no longer any marks confirming his initiations when he reincarnated on his white body, but we don't really know the thinking on that, and as the years passed, it would have been clearer that he was simply an adopted white man and not the reincarnated Aboriginal man. So possibly no initiations into manhood would have been required of him either way. These initiation rituals usually started at around 11 years old and progressed over many years before men were fully-fledged adults in their communities. No doubt the girls would have had their own series of rituals to bring them to womanhood. As mentioned previously, Buckley had no desire to engage in any violent confrontations himself nor be party to the kind of violent payback system that was common. These confrontations frequently resulted in death, and he considered the losses of life to be senseless. I don't think it was cowardice being displayed, but rather that he wished for a calm and peaceful life for himself and his friends. Perhaps the violence he had experienced in the French wars was enough for one lifetime. In the early years in particular, though, he was excluded and sheltered from any fighting when these interclan hostilities took place. His family would demand he stayed well clear of the action, arming him with a spear for self-defence, but insisting he stayed hidden until the action was over, often after some deaths had occurred. He recorded these conflicts often began as fairly ritualised contests, perhaps with just the protagonists clashing, or the chosen champions from the opposing clans doing the fighting. The issue causing the trouble might sometimes be resolved if the protocols and acceptable punishments were achieved, but they often spilled over into wider clan fighting, or proceeded in some other unacceptable way. Or if the confrontation arose from a spontaneous quarrel of some sort, and so on. He was usually still shielded from any danger even in the later years when he had become quite proficient in the use of the hunting weapons, his special status even respected by the other clans. His strong physical presence, coupled with his peaceful disposition, sometimes meant that he could mediate, in some cases, to avoid any escalation to violence. Quote, By my harmless and peaceful manner amongst them, I had acquired great influence in settling their disputes. Unquote. He recorded information about the weapons they made and used. There were special spears for fighting, different to the hunting spears, and Buckley was impressed by the fighting boomerangs called wangam by his Wallaranga warriors. 
Many of us might be familiar with those smaller, lighter, curved wing foil boomerangs designed to return if thrown correctly. But the Wangam is quite a different beast, larger and heavier and designed to fell those it hit. Larkins notes it could fly even further than a spear. He quotes Buckley recalling a time he was inadvertently hit by one of these weapons. Quote, I was very nearly killed by a boomerang, which split my shield in two. It appeared not to have been intended for me. The man who threw it expressed great sorrow. I was wounded in the hand, and the blood flowing, the women came crying and bound it up with a piece of rug, tying it round with opossum sinews, unquote. So, a record of the weapon's power, and a record of the field first aid provided in that recollection. Who needs sports tape and band-aids when you've got possum felt and sinew? He mentioned a shield too, and they had a couple of designs for defence during battle. A tall, solid wood version, and a wider, lighter type made from hard tree bark for closer contact defence and fighting. Along with the spears and boomerangs, they also used clubs for close combat, known as core. Larkins described them as being reminiscent of a cricket bat. <laughs> the tomahawks they used for hunting, Buckley described as being made from, quote, a hard black stone split into convenient thickness, which they rub with very rough granite stone until it's brought to a fine, thin edge, and so hard and sharp as to enable them to fell a very large tree with it, unquote. This stone was apparently not available from their country, and the Walaranga had to trade across 300 miles, that's about 485 kilometres, to source that stone, known to them as Karkeen. It was a major exercise to travel through the country of many other clans, some hostile, and carry back stores of Karkeen to meet their needs, so these stone tomahawks and axes were very valued items. They generally carried fire sticks with them to facilitate the lighting of campfires as they travelled, sometimes carrying prepared but unlit fire sticks wrapped in possum fur for later use. But they were adept at lighting a fire from scratch when necessary, rubbing two sticks together which they called dilwak amongst some tinder. Members of the Kulin nations had complex kinship systems, marriage laws and customs. Marrying into different clans ensured genetic diversity and large inter-clan gatherings would have provided opportunities for the negotiations and prospective marriages. A daughter usually had her partner chosen by her father, sometimes at a very young age, though she would only leave her family for the marriage partner after puberty. But some women were able to choose their own prospective partners for her father to approve. Buckley recorded, quote, The meeting of different tribes I found were not solely for the purposes of exchanging food, but for the very laudable purpose of bringing out their very elegant, amiable, marriageable daughters to be seen and known, and of course courted, unquote. So with inter-clan marriage essential, Buckley noted, quote, they contrive to keep a tolerable account by recollection of their pedigree, and will not, knowingly, marry a relation. Except where two brothers happen to be married, and one dies. In that case, the survivor claims the widow, unquote. So I guess this is one way that a surviving wife is assured a family unit rather than being left destitute in a society where women, having previously left her own original family, required the care and protection of their husband in their new clan. Men would need to complete their long initiation process before being suitable for any wife. And the most prestigious potential husbands would be those skilled at hunting and fighting, and those revered in this area may even be eligible to take several wives.
Larkins writes, The Wallaranga clan, Buckley and his family's clan, was one of around 25 separate groups which made up the Wathawarrung society, or tribe, sharing a common cultural understanding. He notes that clan size might include several hundred members in number and usually had their own separate dialect and be custodians of specific parts of Wathawarrung country. The clans might also further divide into family groups or bands, as Buckley described them, where it was advantageous to be living in a smaller groups for sustainability. Buckley had primarily lived with Nullaboyne and his band for many years. As mentioned before, the Wathawarrung form part of the Kulin Nation, and Larkins explains that they are grouped that way because of the close commonalities of their quote, culture, customs, language and spiritual beliefs, unquote along with their patrilineal structure, where many other nations are matrilineal. He explains that Kulin is their shared word for human beings. But as we can surmise from the frequent violence reported, this commonality didn't mean that they were always allies or on good terms. As we noted earlier, disputes, battles and attacks often occurred as a result of individual disputes boiling over. General insult, disagreements over women, injury, accidental or deliberate, and general bad behaviour and trespass could all instigate conflict, hostility, payback or outright battle. Indeed, they were frequently feuding, but never over land. Land was never fought over or seized. That's such a foreign concept for us today, and for the original colonists whose whole society, economy and legal system evolved and revolved around exclusive land ownership and the constant desire for more. For the First Nations people of Australia, land was not something that could be owned as we understand ownership, not something that could be acquired or taken over from other people who belonged in it. Those entering the lands of others to fight always retreated back to their own country. And unauthorised entry was grounds for dispute amongst neighbours and other groups. Permissions must be sought from the custodians and appropriate protocols observed when travelling through country of another clan. Mostly the fights were undertaken by the men, but women might join in, using their digging tools as weapons perhaps, if it seemed they were needed. And as mentioned before, Buckley witnessed some ritualistic behaviour in relation to some confrontations so it was clear that some offences might be atoned for or be cleared by fitting responses from the appropriate people in the clans, heading off the potentially larger battles. But it didn't always work that way, and often he could not discern what was able to solve a problem and what made it escalate. And it would be one of those shocking and confusing encounters which would lead to great sadness and another change in lifestyle for Buckley after many years living with his adopted brother amongst the Wallaranga clan. Following an initially friendly visit to a neighbouring clan, Nullaboyne and his adult son were soon afterwards attacked and murdered, and Buckley, a witness to the horror, was devastated. He recalled, quote, I suffered the deepest mental anguish from the loss of these poor people who had all along been so kind and good to me. I am not ashamed to say that for several hours my tears flowed in torrents and that for a long time I wept unceasingly. Now they were dead. Of all my sufferings in the wilderness, there was nothing to equal the agony I now endured. Buckley recalled that he along with Nullaboyne and his unnamed adult son, had been visiting as guests of their neighbours, but while there, one of the important men of that clan happened to be bitten by a snake. 
This was an unusual occurrence, but the poor man died soon afterwards, causing great grief amongst his people. They began observing the funeral rites and the wailing that Buckley had seen before, and he noted that these people also cut all their hair short and coated themselves with clay. Buckley had witnessed burials and cremations before, but this deceased man was going to be given a tree burial, and a platform of logs, branches and bark was constructed in a sturdy tree about 12 feet up, uh, around, say, 4 metres, with the body wrapped in his rug, carefully placed between the branches and the bark, face upwards towards the setting sun. More bark and branches were placed over the body to cover it. It seems this type of burial may have been particular for the highly respected warriors or important men of this clan. The women sat below the tree and continued their loud weeping, Buckley recalled, quote, A fire was, as usual, made all around this extraordinary tomb, and at that side in particular which was nearest to the sun at its setting, so that he might have in the morning not only the sun's rays, but the fire to cheer him and warm him. I was much distressed at all of this, for their grief was genuine, unquote, and their noisy lamenting continued throughout the night. After the funeral, Buckley's family returned to their own country, rejoining the women folk, Nullaboyne's other children and the various other relatives camped at the river. Soon, though, they noticed a large group of men approaching, uninvited and looking aggressive. There were about 60 men from the clan they'd recently left, and they saw the men stop on the other side of the river and begin painting themselves, readying for battle. Buckley, Nullaboyne and his adult son could see that there was likely to be trouble, but they were unsure what the issue was, and they hoped, being outnumbered and unarmed, they might be spared an actual attack. So they just waited on their side of the river to see what would transpire. Soon, though, the armed warriors crossed the river and one directly approached Nullaboyne. To everyone's great surprise, he thrust a spear straight through Nullaboyne, and Buckley, completely shocked, ran to his aid. Nullaboyne's wife was then attacked and killed. The injured Nullaboyne rose, still impaled by the spear, but he managed to thrust his own weapon into the arm of his attacker and was then set upon by other warriors with clubs and boomerangs, so there was no chance of him surviving. They also murdered Nullaboyne's adult son, though as had been the case since he began living with the local people, Buckley himself was left unharmed. The warriors then departed, leaving the remaining family in great shock and profound grief of their own. Buckley was particularly distressed and completely bewildered at the sudden turnaround in relations, but he learned later that the killing of Nullaboyne had been payback. The neighbouring clan members had decided that the snakebite death had been caused by some kind of sorcery undertaken by Nullaboyne. Larkins explains it was Nullaboyne's proximity to the snakebite victim and the fact that they were the only outsiders there that marked them as the perpetrators. Buckley explained, quote, They have an odd idea of death, for they do not suppose that anyone dies of natural causes, but from human agencies, unquote, or supernatural it seems. Larkins wrote, There may have been a secondary motive in that Nullaboyne's son was supposed to have promised his young daughter in marriage into that clan, but was accused of then withdrawing that offer, justifying his death. There doesn't seem to be any motive offered for Nullaboyne's wife's killing, though if she had attacked someone trying to protect her husband, no doubt they would have responded. For Buckley, even though he'd been years embedded in this culture, none of this made sense. 
He was devastated by the pointless and brutal murders and was furious with everyone, including his own clan, for their senseless beliefs and actions. These payback rules seemed futile and cruel, and like he experienced when he first found himself alone in the wilderness, Buckley fell into a deep torment. He couldn't bear the society around him accepting what happened, where structured violence was such a large part of their interactions and law, living with them now becoming untenable. After the death of Nullaboyne, he felt he must leave to live on his own, away from the trauma. He gathered up his spears, rolled up his possum skin rug, grabbed a fire stick and headed off, camping away from the villagers and eventually making a fairly permanent camp around one of his favourite places, the Carafe or Bream Creek estuary. It was the place where, all those years before, he'd been rescued from starvation. This time he had the knowledge to flourish in that wilderness. And so he tried again to live a solitary life away from the society which was upsetting him and away from the villages and gathering places. Though his mob visited him from time to time, he lived mostly a reclusive life there while he healed his broken heart. He built himself a comfortable shelter at Carafe with the tools he now possessed and could use effectively. Using his tomahawk, he created a shelter made with a log frame and green bark roof. He sealed the walls using turf and even built himself a chimney using turf bricks. He oriented his hut so that he had a good view across the plains to the sea. With a freshwater source close by and plenty of edible plants on offer and fishing and hunting grounds also close, he was able to make himself very comfortable there. Though he did write that he regretted not bringing a dingo with him, (laughs) for warmth one imagines, but to help with hunting kangaroo too, of course, which was usually a communal activity but he built excellent fishing traps there and really settled in. While the Warong people would on occasion pass through and call on him, or occasionally arrive in larger numbers to harvest fish, and would renew their fond relations with him then. And while he remained living there, when they departed, he did recall that he continued to mourn his family for a long time, and once again he experienced bouts of loneliness and anxiety. On one hunting trip, he also again met his adopted nephew, Nullaboyne's youngest boy. This boy had been born blind, and Buckley reported that while in this society it was sometimes acceptable to euthanise disabled children at birth, Nullaboyne had chosen to keep him, and he had been warmly accepted into the family, and then into the care of the extended family after Nullaboyne was killed. Buckley had a great fondness for the lad, having lived with him through his early childhood, and he was invited back to stay with Buckley for several months. There's also a young girl mentioned too, who may have been Nullaboyne's daughter, though there is also some speculation she may have been Buckley's daughter. Once again, though, they were all to experience more tragedy. Larkins writes that the community around Buckley, including the blind boy and the young girl, were living comfortably and harmoniously when a young man from another mob arrived. He suggests the man may have been travelling alone as part of his initiation rites, and as a gesture of kindness they allowed him to stay the night, offering him shelter in the hut with Buckley's blind nephew. But the man became ill, and after a couple of days, to everyone's great distress, he died. As friendly protocol would require, Buckley and his companions set off to locate and advise the poor man's family, and he wrote, quote, After a time, we fell in with the deceased young man's family, who, on being informed of his death, expressed great astonishment and rage, fancying it to have been brought about by some unfair means on our part. 
This excitement arose to such a height as to approach what it would be mercy to describe as insanity. After a time they forced the poor blind boy away from me and killed him on the spot because he happened to be in the same hut in which the young man died, believing he'd been in some way the means to his death. Unquote. Buckley was once again devastated. Quote, My poor blind boy, for whom I had acquired a great affection, and who, on his part, had so many hundred times clung to me for shelter and protection, was now dead. Unquote. He failed to protect him, and now he worried again about the safety of the younger girl. He thought it might be best if she lived with the family of a man she would later marry, to be protected by the warriors in that family instead of staying with him, and so he went to find them. Unfortunately, after he had explained what had happened, they all declared they would extract their own payback for the boy's death, continuing the cycle of senseless violence and loss, much to the great frustration of Buckley. Indeed, a few men departed immediately and returned, stating that they had killed two of the children of their enemies. Oh, doesn't that just break your heart? The family the girl was promised to were not keen to take on her care in the interim, but Buckley insisted, and as soon as they had charge of her, he once again took off alone. During these last few years, he had usually lived away from the general camps, but was in contact and hunting with his old kinsmen from time to time. Larkin suggests that while the clan members always continued to treat Buckley as a unique member of the community and maintained their commitment to his care and protection, as time passed, their belief that he was the actual reincarnation of Morongirk must have subsided. As they had more and more contact with other white men, his odd appearance would then have had a more likely explanation. Buckley records telling his community various stories from his past over the years too. Stories about England and his convict experience, which they all found fascinating, but which would have further strengthened a change in their perspective about their adopted clansmen, no longer being clearly seen as a spirit man anymore. But afterwards, seen for what he was, a white man escaped from one of the many ships, now increasingly visiting the lands of the Kulin nations. Of course, after a couple of decades, he would have formed many strong bonds that allowed him to remain in his special place within the clan anyway, even to those now recognising him clearly as a white man. But many of those who initially saw him as the reincarnation of the original Morongirk would now be dead, or certainly much older. He had, quote, seen a generation of children grow up into women and men, and many of the old people die away, unquote and the younger generation would have had no relationship with the original Murrungurk either, and they were hearing of more and more pale-skinned men arriving into Kulin Nation's country. Once Nullaboyne and his wife and oldest son were gone, a particularly strong bond was lost. But even so, being recognised now as an ordinary mortal, even one of the whites, Buckley still remained an accepted clan member and an important man in their mob. As the 1820s were marching on, increasing sightings and interactions with white men became more common to the people living around the bay. As the colonial population increased in New South Wales and Van Diemen's Land, more escapees, sealers and explorers were seen and sometimes encountered, including contact with the explorers Hume and Hovel in 1824. Buckley had so completely integrated into Aboriginal life that he Quote, never supposed I should be comfortable among my countrymen again, unquote. And even though his life amongst the Wadawarrung had its difficulties, he no longer expected or desired to be rescued by any passing ship, and believed he would never return to that old white way of life. 
but he did maintain some curiosity when he heard of other white men being encountered. Larkins notes an event that might have been momentous to Buckley occurring in 1824 when human hovel passed through Wathawarrung country on their explorations. Some of the local Aboriginals they encountered told them, via sign language, that they had a man like them living amongst them, and they invited the explorers to accompany them to meet Buckley. Apparently Hume had some interest and would have gone, but Larkins writes Hovel was, quote, hostile to the natives, unquote, fearing they would be ambushed and killed, and so their invitation was declined. At some point, when at a gathering with the neighbouring clan, Buckley was told about another white man they'd found and assisted, probably an earlier escaped convict from Sullivan Bay. But he was told, quote, After some time, they, as it was said, had reason to be jealous of him, he having made too free with their women, so they killed him, unquote. While there was some scope for wives to be loaned to others, these conventions were complicated and probably not really obvious and clear to newcomers. And of course, if you did not respect the people in general, men of that era were unlikely to be respectful of the women either. Sexual misconduct was a big catalyst for violence within the community and no doubt it would have been a bigger issue for those coming in with no knowledge. I think Buckley had the best idea aiming for celibacy in this complicated and sometimes volatile society for his survival. While he did occasionally hear of other white men being encountered by the differing groups around his country, he never discovered the fate of his original escape attempt companions and would not learn about that until he re-entered white society and moved to Van Diemen's land years later. But at some point he did hear of a lone white man found by another tribe on Gadobunut country, west of Cape Otway, potentially another earlier es escapee from the abandoned settlement at Sullivan Bay. Larkin surmises this man had probably also been searching for the fabled whaling stations along the west coast. At the time, Buckley was very keen to travel to meet this man, but would need to cross the country of other clans, so his people had to arrange for permissions and appropriate guides to facilitate the 100-mile or 160-kilometre trek. Apparently, the journey was successful in that they found the white man, possibly a former shipmate, Thomas Pritchard who had escaped on December 19th, 1803, just before Buckley and his mates, according to Larkins. And we don't know when this actually took place, but probably earlier in Buckley's association with his Wathawarrung people, rather than later. But it soon became clear that Pritchard had not so successfully blended into his new living arrangements and was fast wearing out any welcome he previously had amongst the Gutterbunnard people. Buckley and the Wallarunga men decided to bring him back to live with them, but it soon became clear why he was no longer welcome with the Gutterbunnard. The man had none of the cultural sensitivity Buckley displayed, but rather carried the superior prejudices many of his era felt towards Indigenous peoples, believing himself to be superior and above them, and not assimilating into an equal place in the community. Indeed, he was described as, quote, arrogant to the men and dissolute towards the women, unquote. It may not have simply been a mark of his racism. For all we know, he was a jerk amongst his white society too. But to be so insensitive to the mores of a new society on whose goodwill his survival depended was both offensive and clearly unwise. It's possible now that he was in the company of another white man, Pritchard felt even more superior, his behaviour becoming even more unpleasant. We just don't know. But in only a very short time, it was clear to Buckley that this man's imprudent conduct was putting them both at risk, and he had to leave the clan. 
It seems he was not able to moderate his behaviour though, as he soon afterwards was killed by another group after mistreating their women, apparently. Buckley tells of rumours of another escapee living for some time in the region, possibly George Pye, who had also absconded in late December, and who Larkin suggests was living for some time with the locals around the Yarra River area. But it seems he did not survive very long either, probably again failing to integrate, as Buckley had done. Ungracious visitors will wear out their welcome if they have nothing to offer their hosts, but the kind of tolerance and open-mindedness that Buckley appears to have had, and his ability to see it was he who needed to fit into the existing mores of his new community, and to try and be judgment-free about their culture, I think indicates he was a special man for his era. The Kulin peoples, and others, often seemed disposed to initially helping those in need, but they would not tolerate bad behaviour or lack of respect by their own people or by the white incomers. And fair enough, too. You know, when in Rome and all that. Soon afterwards, sealers moved into Boonwarung country, around the eastern side of the bay, and the Wathawarung would have heard of the brutal behaviour they were capable of. They were known to kidnap and enslave Aboriginal women, treating them abominably. A sensitive man, Buckley had no interest in making contact with the likes of them. But he was curious when, after another couple of years, he heard there were about 50 people, sounding like marines and male and female convicts, perhaps, apparently having another go setting up an outpost, this time in Western Port Bay, on Phillip Island near Coronella. So that, then, would have been 1826, and that outpost was named Fort Damaresque. But again, they only persevered there until 1828, before again abandoning an unsuitable site. Buckley wrote, quote, I sometimes thought of going to the Europeans I had heard were at Western Port, but I never could make up my mind to leave the party to whom I had become attached. I never supposed I should be comfortable among my own countrymen again, unquote. Let's return to looking at Buckley's life after he'd begun living alone, away from his mob, because while he was coping well, he was not necessarily any happier. His clan's attempt to bring him a wife for companionship had ended badly, with her leaving him only a few months into their marriage, so that must have been somewhat disappointing. Though he made no fuss about that and didn't insist on her return, he was nonetheless often lonely again. Now all this time he was no longer marking the passage of time, so it's hard to know how long he spent alone. But after some time, possibly a couple of years, he noted, quote, I was now again very lonely and miserable, and whilst indulging in melancholy thoughts one day, such as cannot be described, I was unexpectedly joined by a young native woman who had run away from her tribe at some distance, unquote. He records that she had also run away to avoid the inter-clan fighting that was taking place, and though he was aware her presence with him may well draw him into that world again, despite his usual caution, he allowed her to stay. Amidst this period of loneliness and melancholy, perhaps the lure of an, quote, amiable young lady friend, unquote, was very great. Unlike the wife from his short-lived marriage, this young lady seemed pleased to build a life with Buckley, though the age difference would have been great to our modern sensibility. She was probably only around 15 years old. They knew it was likely that her kin would come looking for her, and both felt that it would be safer if they moved to different country further away. And so they walked on 
to an isolated beach with scarce food resources, making it less likely they would have people arriving, but which had a cave to shelter in, and they made themselves comfortable hiding there. There is conjecture about where this might actually have been, though Buckley named the site as Dunawa. Maybe around present-day Torquay? Anyway, they seem to have made a nice life there together, possibly even for a few years. Larkins records that many decades later, around 1865, at the Framlingham Mission near Warrnambool, a Buninyong woman named Paranmurnin Talawunin claimed to have been Buckley's companion, arriving at his camp when she was around 15 and saying they lived together, quote, for a long time, unquote. After an unknown period living at their isolated Dunawa camp, they thought it might once again be safe to return to his original comfortable camp where food was easier to obtain, and so they moved back to his turf hut on the estuary. It's believed they had at least one daughter together, as Larkins writes that Buckley pointed the girl out to the surveyor John Wedge, who had come into the area in the mid-1830s, when Buckley had at last shown himself to the colonial parties coming in. He never mentioned any daughter to Morgan, though, his biographer, or to others, and Larkin surmises that the taboo and religious judgments associated with him sleeping with an Aboriginal woman and fathering an illegitimate half-caste child, quote-unquote, as they would have called her, would have led to his caution in this regard. He was a man who could keep sensitive information to himself and could well judge the mores of the community and the behaviours expected of him. He had been discreet about a good many things, and maybe he was wanting to protect her as well. So we don't really know. But sadly, even though possibly years had passed, eventually members of her clan did make their way back to Buckley's camp for discussions, and they insisted that Purinmurnan Talawurnan returned with them. Buckley, aware that resistance could likely lead only to violence, conceded. But the child was to remain with him, so he had to figure out how to care for this young girl in his isolated camp. He said that soon afterwards a friendly Wallaranga family also settled nearby and helped him. But it's not clear where this falls in the murky timeline. In Morgan's book, this girl child is described as his charge, possibly a sister to the blind boy who was killed and not his daughter. The timeline is very confusing and there is some thought that he told the story a little out of time in order to disguise that she may have been his daughter. While there was a great deal to love about the people, community support and about the culture and lifestyle of the Wathawarung, the level of violence and the custom of payback for real or supernatural occurrences as they saw them was not something that Buckley could ever embrace. The time was coming when they would all suffer unexpected and catastrophic, almost supernatural losses though and this would result in a very serious decline in the indigenous population of the Kulin nations. When the Europeans arrived in Port Jackson in 1788, they brought with them diseases that the Aboriginal people had never been exposed to, and therefore had no hint of natural immunity to. Soon afterward, waves of smallpox had halved the populations of the Eora nations around Sydney and spread into the surrounding country. The people of the Kulin nations to the south, being so distant from Sydney, largely escaped any contamination at that time, with so few visitors to their region. But when another epidemic raged in 1829, there was much more close communication from northern neighbours and from parties of Europeans encountering various Aboriginal groups in the south. This time, a great toll was taken amongst the largely unexposed Kulin nations people to the south. Buckley recorded seeing an illness surge through his Wallaranga clan, 
quote, which spread through the country, occasioning the loss of many lives, unquote. These losses were so great that members of the Kulin Nation were concerned that the spirits might be deserting them entirely, that the sky may fall in, marking the end of the world. Other diseases, such as syphilis, was also spreading through the communities, as the general white presence in the region increased, and Buckley notes that these illnesses were, quote, the subject of general conversation, unquote, amongst his adopted people. He had noticed earlier how healthy these people were in general, noting, quote, considering how they are exposed to the weather, it is wonderful how little they suffer. They are in general very healthy. I never observed any European contagious disease prevalent in the least degree, and I thought this was strange, unquote. Buckley must have soon recognised these diseases and the increased white contact in general were the harbingers of even greater loss and disturbance to come for these people. So we'll finish up here for today, and next time we'll learn how Buckley re-established contact with his first society, meeting the white newcomers who were intending to colonise the country around the bay. And we'll look at how he coped after more than 30 years away from his white society. He was officially still an escaped convict, and there would be the possibility of punishment once he was identified. So lots of interesting information still to come. He lived a long life and his memoirs were written up fairly late in his life, so we'll see what panned out for him in the coming years. I don't have a podcast recommendation for you this time, I just um, (laughs) ran out of time to to get one organised, but um, perhaps at the end of next episode. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to check the additional material on the Australian Histories Podcast website at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au and contact details can be found there also. I'll get working now on part three, the final in Buckley's story. Thanks, take care, and I'll talk to you again soon. Cheers. Cheers.